Third Man Walking. I want to start today by talking about a hand. This is a hand from a couple months ago, and it was in a stretch where I was struggling. I was playing big games, mostly 3,000 cap, 510, and I was having some winning days, but I was having a lot of losing days. And just the amounts of money that were going in and out on a daily basis were just really big. And I was feeling like nothing was really working for any sustained period of time, and I also just felt tired. So I had a stretch there where for a couple days a week, uh, early in the week when I don't necessarily expect the games to be great, I was playing some 5-5. So I'm in a 5-5, 1,000 cap game. It's a great game, and I'm struggling in this game too. I'm stuck, and maybe it's good that I chose to play 5-5 this particular day because the way I played the hand I'm about to describe to you was questionable. In this hand, there are three limps, including the main villain uh, who's on the button. I have black jacks in the small blind and raised to $55. The low jack calls and so does our friend on the button. So now there's about $160 in the pot and the flop comes 10, 8, 3 with two diamonds and one heart. So I have an overpair here with black jacks. I bet $75 and both players call. So now there's about $385 in the pot heading to the turn, which is an offsuit king. I now check, now that there's an overcard to my jacks out there, the low jack quickly checks, and now the button bets $335. So I have history with this player. I know he won't bet just a king or just a 10 like this. Maybe he would with king X of diamonds specifically. But other than that, he's not really saying he has one pair because he's betting so big, almost full pot, 335 into 385. So what he's saying is that he has two pair to the king, king 10, king eight, king three, or something he slow played on the flop, which I think he definitely could. So the next question is, would this player bluff using the sizing? And in my experience with this player, yes, he absolutely would. Uh, he would peel super wide on the flop, um, not only with diamond draws, but also 8x, 3x, backdoor hearts, and a variety of straight draws. Jax does block some of these straight draws like Jack-9 and Queen-Jack, but this guy will peel the flop with, you know, 7-6, very weak draws like that. So I think his range is really wide going into the turn and has a lot of bad hands in it. I also think he's pretty capable of bluffing. I still do have to worry about the other player in the hand, but when he checks so fast on the turn, I think with this particular player, I can assume that he's done with the hand. So although I think that just folding here is probably prudent, even against a player capable of bluffing, I go ahead and call and the other player, as I expect, folds. So now there's $1,055 in the pot and the river is a black 10. So now the board is 10, 8, 3, king, 10, and the front door diamonds have bricked. If my opponent had a strong hand on the turn, he still has a strong hand, but all the draws have missed. The number of strong hands he can have is actually fewer now 
because we didn't expect him to be bombing the turn the way he did with just a 10. So the number of potential king 10s and, and so on that are out there is fewer with another 10 on the board. So I check and my opponent moves in for about $950. I know from experience that this player will run bluffs like this. I end up calling and my opponent shows 10-8 offsuit. So he flopped two pair, slow played it, and then bombed the turn when it checked to him and he improved to a full house on the river. Uh, so I lose a big pot. And unlike some of the big pots I had lost in the previous couple weeks in bigger games, you could argue that this one is my fault. And I think that calling turn and calling river is just generically not very good against almost everyone who plays 5-5. Is it good against this guy? I don't know. Maybe. It's it's close and it's hard to say. And this time I got it wrong. So I play for about another hour, maybe kind of grateful that I didn't lose similar pots for proportionally more money in 510 or 510.20. But just feeling overall like things aren't working. And I eventually rack up, head to the cashier, and as I'm heading to the cashier, I pass this same guy who I've played with a lot and I'm friendly with, and he actually apologizes for beating me with the 10-8 off, and I, you know, which is nice of him, and I, I, I kind of laugh, and it's like, it's no problem at all, but in my head, I'm stuck in a rut, and I don't know how to get out of it. <laughs> Today I want to discuss an odd element of poker culture. The tendency of players to underreact to seemingly noteworthy events. Much of what happens at the poker table is mundane. I don't know how many hands I've seen where the button raises to three big blinds and the big blind calls and then folds to a continuation bet. These sorts of hands mostly don't require reaction or commentary. But poker also occasionally features occurrences, either within the game or just outside it, that are highly unlikely or just plain weird. And when one of these things happens, players sometimes react the way you'd expect. But often, they react with the same nonchalance they display after one of those boring hands where the big blind folds to a c-bet. Today, I'll tell a series of stories of weird things I've seen or experienced at the poker table that my opponents underreacted to. And I'll explore why they underreacted, why they saw something strange, and acted like it was nothing. Story 1. So I'm in a 5-10 game, and the players agree to switch the game to 10-20. And within about a half hour, I pick up pocket kings, and I get it in against another player who has aces. We agree to run it twice, and the first board runs out king-king-five-ace-jack, giving me quads and him aces full of kings. So that's weird enough on its own, aces full of kings losing to quad kings. But what's even weirder here is that 510 is a jackpot game. And the basic qualification for a jackpot is aces full of tens being beaten by quads or better. 
So this hand would have been a jackpot for something like twenty to forty thousand dollars about a half hour before. But since we switched the game from five ten to ten twenty, it's not a jackpot. I'm friendly with my opponent in this hand, and much to his credit, when he sees the board, he laughs and fist bumps me, even though he'd just gotten his money in as an 80% favorite, only to win just half the pot. Then I say, that would have been a jackpot a half hour ago. And he says, yeah, wow, that's weird. And the rest of my opponents say nothing. No reaction. Now, why don't they say anything? Well, maybe they just didn't notice anything had happened. In the course of an eight-hour session, I certainly miss hands while talking with someone or using my phone, although I rarely completely miss hands this big. The potentially more powerful explanation, though, is that they saw the showdown and they didn't care. As I've discussed in previous episodes, when we play poker, we see ourselves as the protagonist in a drama that's either uplifting or tragic, depending on whether we're winning or stuck. Often there are hands that have nothing to do with that drama and it feels natural to mostly ignore them. To another guy at the table, two other players turning up with quads and top boat has nothing to do with the fact that he's down $1,600. The more attention you pay at the table and the more perceptive you are, the more money you'll make. But it's still hard when your own money is on the line not to make everything at the table about yourself. Also, and this is important, when you're the one overreacting at the table, you look like a noob. It's 2021. Poker first became a cultural phenomenon 18 years ago. Even many of the recreational players at my tables have, by this point, played hundreds of thousands of hands, which means they've seen almost every weird combination of cards you can imagine. Quads beats aces over kings. Psh, I saw a 10 high straight flush beat an 8 high straight flush back in 2012. If you think aces full losing to quad kings is interesting, you're a fish. Story 2. So I'm playing 5-10, and I see a pot that I'm not in, in which there's a full board, we've gone all the way to the river, there are three clubs on the board, and the board is unpaired. So any suited ace of clubs is the nuts, the best possible hand, the ace high flush. And on the river, one player bets $200, and his opponent raises to $600. The first player thinks for a minute and then calls. The player who raised to $600 turns over king nine of clubs for the king high flush, the second nuts. And then there's a pause, and then the other player turns over ace three of clubs. So he had the best possible hand, he got raised, and then he just called, leaving something like $1,000 behind. Which makes no sense, there was no reason for him not to put in another raise. And I subtly glance at the king nine guy like, what the hell just happened? And he makes a face that says, yeah, I, I don't know. And other than that, no one reacts. So why didn't they react? Well, again, it's possible that at least some of them didn't notice. But even if they did notice, they probably didn't want to tap the glass. You don't want to call out another player for making a mistake. If the ace-three guy didn't know that an ace-high flush was the best possible hand, we don't want to tell him. That's what's best for everyone at the table except this guy. This reminds me of something that happened a few years before. I'd seen this wild, wild hand. In this hand, all the money went in on the flop, and it turned out that one player had aces 
and the other had kings. And the pot was about 3,500 big blinds. Just a massive hand, and I think probably the biggest hand I've ever seen in terms of the number of big blinds. Now, in this hand, before the flop, the player with kings had put in a fourth or fifth bet to 400 big blinds. And the player with aces, a recreational player who was well known to the community, said the words, I've got to see a flop. And then he just called the bet. So a couple weeks later, I'm telling a different table full of players about this hand. I don't remember if someone had heard about it and had asked me because they knew I was there or why I mentioned it, but I ended up telling this other table full of players about this enormous hand that had happened a week or so before. And an hour or so later, the same well-known recreational player sits down at this table I'd told this story to. And an hour or so after that, this same player faces a huge pre-flop re-raise. And he says the words, I've got to see a flop, the exact same words, and then he just calls. And now I see other players at the table glancing around as if to say, did anyone just hear him say that? And sure enough, when the hand shows down, the recreational player has pocket aces. And then another player at the table literally says, that's also what you said when you had aces in that other hand a few weeks ago. And I think, oh no, <laughs> this is a disaster. You're tapping the glass. You are breaking the glass. And I was the one who had given her that bit of information. His language, I've got to see a flop, was clearly some sort of tell. And I didn't even really know that. I just thought it was a funny little detail of the hand. So I'm an idiot. I shouldn't have told the story to begin with. But also, she definitely shouldn't have said what she said. Sometimes in poker, underreacting protects important information. Story three. Five years ago, I'm in Mississippi to play a tournament series. I'm firing the main tournament running that day and then playing 2-5 in the evening after I bust. One day, though, I bust a tournament and there's a $250 satellite for the main event of this tournament series, which I think cost about $1,700 to enter. I'm planning to play the main event regardless, but I think, eh, I'll fire this satellite and I'll see if I can get in for a bunch cheaper. Anyway, an hour or so into this tournament, which is in this enormous auditorium, I see a guy a couple hundred feet away wearing one of those furry Russian winter hats with a t-shirt and shorts. He looks like a cartoon. I probably get dealt a hand and forget about this guy for a second. But then I look up a couple minutes later and he's closer now and it hits me, oh, that's Chris Moneymaker. And there's an open seat to my direct left and he sits down. Moneymaker won the 2003 main event of the World Series of Poker, the tournament that kicked off the poker boom. He's a huge part of poker history. And he sits down at my table in a $250 satellite, a very small tournament that isn't exactly full of top pros. And no one says anything. And I'm like, wow, these people are playing a $250 tournament. They're hobbyists. And they're almost surely aware of who Chris Moneymaker is. And they say nothing. I had a college friend who was playing pickup basketball once and Kevin Garnett walks into the gym with a bunch of other NBA players and says, hey, we got next. And everyone says, uh, okay. And my friend ends up having to guard Kevin Garnett. 
On the first possession, Garnett gets the ball at the top of the key and fakes a shot. My friend, who is almost a foot shorter than Garnett, jumps without knowing why. Garnett easily breezes past him and dunks. It's been a long time since my friend told me that story, and I still remember it. I hope he still tells it. Now, this Chris Moneymaker story isn't exactly like that. Poker is special in that anyone who can afford to buy in can play with the best in the world and win. If you play in a tournament series, even one in Mississippi, there's some chance you're going to play with someone who's played on TV before. I'm sure many of these recreational players Moneymaker is sitting down with also get that he isn't a world-class player. He isn't Kevin Garnett. He's just a guy who won a tournament at the right time and became a sort of ambassador for the game. And I'm in northern Mississippi, Moneymaker's from Tennessee, so maybe all these people have played with him a million times. But here we are getting to play with this legend of poker, and no one at the table has anything to say about it. No one wants to look like a noob. Normally I might do the same thing, or maybe I'd make the more advanced move, preferred by seasoned poker players, which is to wait to say something until you've played with the guy for an hour, and then start a conversation with him by saying, hey Chris. That gives the rest of the table the impression you and Chris have known each other for years, and maybe Moneymaker himself even thinks that you've played together a bunch and he just doesn't remember. But on this particular day, I don't feel like doing that. Instead, I say, oh cool, Chris Moneymaker. And he laughs, and we end up talking for a while. That isn't my usual move, but I'm glad I did that. I bust him from the tournament, too. Story 4. It's a few years later, and I'm in L.A. It's Friday or Saturday night, and I'm playing in a casino at a table next to a bar. I've registered the presence of a couple guys on bar stools having a conversation, but I haven't thought anything of it. Suddenly, though, one of these two guys is crumpled on the floor, not moving, and his friend is nowhere to be found. The casino's security team is on this fairly quickly, and within a minute or so, they're on their walkie-talkies trying to get medical help for this guy. After a few minutes, he still hasn't moved. The players at my table have all noticed this situation by now. And for all we know, this guy just had a heart attack. He might be dead. There's a hospital very close to the casino. And within seven or eight minutes, paramedics are on the scene. They kneel over this guy for a few minutes, and then they strap him to a gurney. It's clear by this point that he is not, in fact, dead. He's moving around. And we later hear that what was going on was exactly what you would think was happening, which is that he got really drunk and passed out. But for a few minutes, we thought this guy might have been dead. We thought some guy just collapsed and kicked the bucket less than 10 feet from us. So what were we doing while this was happening? Well, nothing. We just kept playing poker. And you could hardly blame us. There was nothing for us to do, really. We weren't doctors. And casino security was dealing with the problem almost right away. But it never occurred to us to do anything else while, for all we knew, this man was expiring in front of us. We just kept playing cards. Story 5. Last one. It's three days after the pocket jacks hand I lost at the beginning of this episode. And I'm at the same casino playing 5-5 again. And again, it's not going well. I'm struggling, and I'm hating poker, and I'm trying to play through it. And something similar to the last story about the guy lying on the floor next to the bar happens again. So now we're playing outside, and 
My table is next to a large white screen that blocks the sunshine. I can't see past this screen. And I'm just playing and minding my business. And all of a sudden, someone behind the screen starts shouting something like, I can leave on my own. I can leave on my own over and over. And this time, the poker players on hand do not underreact. Almost everyone on my side of the screen starts running around the screen to see what's going on. But I don't. To me, it seems pretty obvious what's happening. There's a patron who casino security views as some sort of threat or problem, and they've restrained him somehow. I'm still in my seat as the crowd near the screen begins to part, and I see security holding a man's hands behind his back as they lead him back into the casino. He keeps shouting, I can leave on my own, I can leave on my own. As he disappears back into the building, the players who gather to watch him begin to return to their seats. And then there's an extremely loud bang, and then silence. And I can tell pretty quickly from the way everyone else has reacted that nothing is horribly wrong. Someone has probably just knocked over a garbage can or something. But my first thought is, it sounds like they just shot that guy. And I've listened to this conflict unfold, and I haven't stopped playing poker or even removed my earbuds. A few hours later, I've grinded back some of my losses, and then I play a big hand against the same villain who'd beaten me with 10-8 offsuit against Jax a few days earlier. I didn't write this hand down, but the gist is that I have pocket nines on a board of Jack-9-3 with two diamonds. I bet, and my opponent calls. The turn is a brick. I bet fairly large, and my opponent raises to about $350, leaving himself about $600 behind. I go all in with my second set, and he thinks for a while and then calls. The river doesn't help him, and I win a pot of about $2,200. And as I'm raking in this pot, my opponent, who is really one of the nicest guys in LA poker, gets up from his seat, claps me on the back, and says, You couldn't let me keep your money for three days, motherfucker? I don't feel sorry for you anymore. And at that moment... I didn't feel sorry for myself anymore either. Not that I got too down just because I struggled for a month, but I'd reached the point where I felt like nothing was working and that there was nothing for me to do but keep pushing through until things started working again. I wasn't having fun and I didn't expect to have fun. And I'd become the sort of player who sits there in a daze, ignoring the strange things going on around me. I hear that loud clang, that garbage can falling over sound again in my head, and I think, It's time to wake up. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking or via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com. 